Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, On the Media, Rachel Maddow, and by special listener suggestion, Democracy Now! Oil companies at war with consumers? It, you know what's what's really tragic? It's interesting that Randy Hall brought up Jimmy Carter. It's like, you know, you talk to conservatives about this, and, and instantly it's like, well, Jimmy Carter wasn't very popular. Uh, well, yeah, he sort of inherited this uh, problem, you know. It's uh, from Nixon and Ford and all these guys, and then and then there was this war in the Middle East, and, and then and then George Bush went over with with his uh, with Reagan's head of his of his campaign and uh, kind of deal with the Iranians to hold on to the hostages you know so the the, Oct- the infamous October surprise and you add it all together and what you've got is well yeah it was a mess but Carter really was in the he was about fixing that mess he was about doing something about it and the part that's really heartbreaking i mean really and truly heartbreaking is to listen to what he put in place and to remember that that Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. came into office on the back of oil money or on the on the wings of oil money perhaps would be there is they came into office with all this oil money Reagan took the Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House he he did away I mean it, Carter had birthed an entire solar industry I remember when Louise and I first moved to Vermont. We live in Portland, Oregon right now, but about 10 years ago, we first moved to, uh, 11 years ago now, we moved to Vermont from Atlanta. And and we were traveling around the state looking for, for a house to buy. And there were all, about maybe every, I don't know, fifth or eighth house, something like that we would find, because we were looking for something rural out in the country, would be a house, you know, there was a lot of them off the grid, would be a house that was built that was passive solar, uh, that was south-facing, that had all this glass, all, you know, these big uh, heat sinks, you know, concrete floors and all this stuff. And very, very efficient houses. And they were all made during this one particular period of time. They were all built in the late 70s or in 1980. And the reason why was because Jimmy Carter gave tax breaks for that if you build a house like that you could you could get a tax break he birthed an industry an industry of of saving energy and an industry of creating alternative energy he birthed these industries and ronald reagan came into office and virtually the first thing he did was was shut that down do away with that legislation say oh wait wait a minute wait a minute we're going to we're going to save oil no, 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 no. We're going to consume oil. Don't you understand? That's, that's where the money for the Republican Party comes from. But here's the, this is the make-you-want-to-cry tragedy part. Here's Jimmy Carter. I, I played a, a, a clip of a speech from Jimmy Carter's July 15, 1979 speech on the energy crisis just a minute ago. Here's a little more of it. Jimmy Carter, about his vision for where, what he was going to do to bring, and he actually did this. I mean, he got this legislative initiative through in 1979. It's just Reagan undid it. This was his vision for America of the year 2000, six years ago. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. By the year 2000. I mean, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. We have basically four companies now taking running all of this oil 
Dennis Kucinich saying excess profits tax, let's do it. The problem is that you you have this cartel, and they say, well, you know, we're only making seven and a half, eight, nine percent. Microsoft makes thirty percent. We're making less than Microsoft. I mean, why are you picking on us? And that's a hard argument to refute until you say, oh, well, first of all, Europe is picking on Microsoft and saying, yeah, uh, well, we're not in favor of monopolies, and you shouldn't be either. So that you, we could get into that discussion, but you know, without picking on Microsoft right now, the point is that that the oil companies have become just mind-bogglingly profitable because they are so large. You have Shell's first quarter profits rose 12%. This in the in the quarter that just just completed. This, by the way, uh, information from the Democratic National Committee. Uh, oddly enough, what a surprise! Exxon Mobil's first quarter profits increased 7%. Net income rose to 8.4 billion in the first quarter. Sales climbed 9%. Uh, ConocoPhillips' first quarter profits surged 13%. Chevron's first quarter is up 40%. Uh, Hess's first quarter profits tripled. Uh, you know, what are we going to do? I think we should nationalize the oil. I think very simple. Just to say it's ours. We're going to hang on to it. If the threat posed by bird flu is overhyped, then what about climate change? For years, news reports played the threat down by playing up the impression that the jury was still out on the causes of global warming, not to mention its effects down the road. But lately, at least in the pages of the American press, we see more and more signs of impending apocalypse. Polar bears drowning in Alaska, hurricanes intensifying, record-breaking temperatures. Be worried, be very worried, warned a recent Time magazine cover. And this Wednesday, select theaters premiere an inconvenient truth, the new documentary about Al Gore's climate crusade. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. This is Patagonia, 75 years ago, and the same glacier today. This is Mount Kilimanjaro, 30 years ago, and last year. Within the decade, there will be no more snows of Kilimanjaro. If you take climate change seriously, you might think that all the recent media is good news. But New York Times science writer Andrew Revkin isn't entirely thrilled. He's covered climate change for more than two decades, during which he's noticed a pattern of playing up the spectacle at the expense of the science. When you start focusing on the things that are happening in the here and now world, like hurricanes, my God, it doesn't get any more vivid than that. So you're really, every bone in your journalistic body is trying to find that link. Where's the front page thought here? And the front page thought is clearly that global warming has somehow juiced up last year's hurricane season specifically Mm -hmm. in a way that is our fault. You get into this realm where there is legitimate debate still in the science and you move away from um, the things that no one disputes, that these gases like carbon dioxide trap the sun's heat, they're warming the climate, and they will warm the climate more in coming years. You say the fact that CO2 is building up in the atmosphere is now beyond doubt. What is still dubious? Well, the debate now is about how fast consequences will play out. Um, Whether sea level rises two or three feet in each century is different than if it rises, let's say, 10 feet in one century. When you look ahead at the Arctic, 
later this century, there's there's not a scientist around studying this stuff who doesn't see the prospect of basically a blue pole at the top of the world for the first time in human history, meaning summertime, open water ocean, just like the Atlantic or the Pacific, all the ice gone. But when you look at the near term, there's been a lot of melting, a lot of strange things going on with the sea ice. They can't ascribe this particular year to our influence on the climate system. They know it's contributing to change, but there's enough variability in the Arctic that you can't make a slam dunk case. But that's a nightmare for the media. You know, my editors, the one thing that makes them glaze over immediately is the word incremental. That's like at the Times, and I'm sure any other newsroom, that's, that's a death sentence for a story. And global warming is kind of like the social security and national debt of the environment. It's there. We all recognize it's some kind of big bad thing, but it's always kind of a someday somewhere story. And there's something else they have in common. No good pictures. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can photograph dead birds at an mm-hmm. oil spill. You can photograph the uh, destruction of the rainforest. Even the ozone hole, the atmospheric problem that we grew up with in the 80s, had a clear glaring symbol, this sort of purple bruise in the atmosphere over Antarctica. And easy to identify bad guys, just those uh, people who produced uh, chlorofluorocarbons. Right, right. A very different kind of problem. And it's very easy to cast an administration or industry as the bad guy here. It's much harder to realize that this buildup of these greenhouse gases is caused by every single thing we do in modern life. Uh, Building a new power plant, turning on a car, it's hard to think. Oh, we're the bad guy. That doesn't make for such a convenient story either. Many people out there, including many scientists I talked to, are incredibly frustrated that scientists have not been able to kind of explain this situation in a way that galvanizes a big public response. And so this is almost a natural reaction to kind of reach out, to grasp a little farther toward the thing in the, in the here and now world that might make it a media story or might get people's attention. This can backfire. You get into a realm where there's enough debate that um, opponents of action on global warming can jump right in and say you're just fear-mongering. And uh, as we've said on this show, there are efforts on the part of industry to exploit uh, the journalistic practice of offering balance, the he-said-she-said kind of argument, in order to play up the idea of uncertainty where it might not exist. In fact, in, in the Times, in 1998, Jack Cushman, a colleague of mine, revealed a document that essentially was a, the game plan of uh, the energy lobbies to uh, uh, fight greenhouse gas restrictions. And it expressly laid out a budget and uh, how to hire some scientists um, to train them to uh, speak about uncertainty and get out there in the mix. And we have a quote from that memo here. Victory will be achieved when uncertainties in climate science become part of the conventional wisdom. We also have a tape that was launched just this week by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a libertarian group backed by ExxonMobil. Let's listen to that. Greenland's glaciers are growing, not melting. Did you see any big headlines about that? Why are they trying to scare us? Global warming alarmists claim the glaciers are melting because of carbon dioxide from the fuels we use. Let's force people to cut back, they say. But we depend on those fuels to grow our food, move our children, light up our lives. And as for carbon dioxide, it isn't smog or smoke. It's what we breathe out and plants breathe in. Carbon dioxide, they call it pollution. We call it life. So, Andrew, I have to ask you, why do you hate children and plants? <laughs> well, nobody hates children and plants. And carbon dioxide is and has always been a component of the atmosphere. Um, but we're doubling the amount from what was there before industry got busy and before we got busy 150 years ago burning coal and oil. And there's, uh, again, a huge body of evidence that that's leading to a world that will be a very different place than, than we are familiar with. 
This is the breaking news. The breaking news is humans are transforming the way the world works. And it's the breaking news today, tomorrow, what? next week, <laughs> next month, and for the end of the century, it, and for half of the previous century. It's breaking news in terms of the scope of the history of human life on Earth, right, which is, for most people, a snooze. I guess it gets down to what is journalism about. I do think there's a part of journalism that needs to explore the things that don't necessarily fit our norms. In other words, let's, for the moment, leave aside the things at the edges of the science that are compelling and weird and scary, but that we don't really understand very well, and get back to the bedrock. This is what carbon dioxide does. More of it will make the world warmer. A warmer world will have less ice. That will make seas higher, and that will lead to profound transformations that we need to pay attention to. And if it takes writing a story that way, where you literally start the lead of the story, this isn't a story as we know it, but this is a story. Let me tell you why. I, I think that's a, that could work. Maybe once. I think basically, you know, well, maybe once, maybe once. I mean, maybe it means that, that in this 21st century world, the front page needs to evolve a little bit. All right. Thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Andrew Revkin covers climate science and policy for the New York Times. His new book is called The North Pole Was Here, Puzzles and Perils at the Top of the World. Pull the curtain shut, try to keep it dark, but the sun is burning, the sun is burning. And Robert Kennedy Jr. on the line. Hey, Robert Kennedy Jr., I... Love your program on the weekends. Well, Tom, I love your program. You've been terrific, especially on this issue. Well, thank I you. Wanted, I wanted to just uh, uh, reply to some, one of the points that was made by an earlier caller. And that was the point about what Bill Clinton had done to resurrect the earlier Carter energy efficiency. Yeah, if you can, if you can educate us about this, I, I have to say, during the middle of Clinton's presidency, I sold a business here in the United States, moved to Europe, lived there for a year, and then spent the next year in, mostly in China and Russia, and, and, and there's a, a bit of a hole in my knowledge of what Clinton was up to. So you missed the golden era. I guess so, so he, yeah. The, um, in, his, in his first year in office, one of the, the, the centerpieces of his administration was a BTU tax, which the Republicans tore to pieces. Right. And that would have been better than, than anything that Carter had done because it would have employed market forces to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Yeah, I remember Carter that proposal. Did, and this, you know, this shouldn't be a partisan, and this shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, the, the, actually the, the, CAFE standards, which were the centerpieces of Carter's program, were passed not just by Carter, but by Jerry Ford. And what they were intended to do was to get us, at that point, we were in 1979, we, our average fuel efficiency was 18 miles per gallon, about 18.6 miles per gallon. Mm -hmm. They were designed to get us to 40 miles per gallon by the turn of the century. By, they succeeded miraculously by 1986, our fleet had moved to about 27.5 miles per gallon. And the, that added fuel economy had created a surplus, a huge surplus of oil in this country. It had gone to a deficit situation, to a surplus situation. It dropped the price of, of gasoline at our tanks to the lowest level in decades. And that's when, as you said correctly, Ronald Reagan rolled them back. It, and that was in 1986. If we had left those fuel economy standards in place in 1986, we would not have had to import a single drop of Persian Gulf oil into this country after 1986. Wow. If that were true, 
it's almost certain that the World Trade Center would still be standing because we wouldn't have gotten involved in the first Iraq war. We wouldn't have put the the, the troops in troops in Saudi in Arabia Kuwait and yeah. Saudi Arabia, etc. But you know what has Bush done? Bush has fought. You know the, the the most important thing we can do is cafe standards. If we raise fuel economy by one miles per gallon. We generate twice the oil that's in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. If we raise fuel economy by 7.6 miles per gallon, we, generate, we yield more oil than we now import from, the, from the, all of the Persian Gulf. So we could eliminate Persian Gulf oil imports into our country, our reliance on Persian Gulf oil, simply by raising fuel economy 7.6 miles per gallon. It's, um, the other thing that we need to do is to improve efficiency standards in our appliances. That's something that was done during the Clinton administration, but the Bush administration, in its first six weeks in office, rolled those back, despite the fact that most of the air conditioning industry wanted those standards. They wanted minimum standards because they knew that with those minimum standards they could compete in our country, plus they could sell their appliances abroad right. because there's a, there's a burgeoning demand for efficient appliances all over the world, particularly in places like India and China where they know that the dangers of, of pollution and global warming. But there were two companies in Texas. <laughs> Why does everything go back to Texas, Robert? <laughs> that produce the worst... They were the bottom feeders. They produced the most inefficient air conditioners, and they were able to yeah. convince um, the Bush administration to release the standards so that their products could compete in the marketplace. And that's where we are today. And that's not to mention. So his his policies have been actively encouraging the consumption of fossil fuels. I mean, one of the things that you haven't mentioned is that the Bush administration fought and Congress and implemented a hundred thousand dollar tax breaks for anybody who buys a Hummer or the 16 largest SUVs, and they cut the tax break for, for hybrid cars. Right, and this just got renewed, by the way. This, this vote in the House uh, just, uh, rene- just continued the $100,000 deduction for small businesses for equipment, and a car that weighs more than 6,000 pounds is called equipment. Right, well, and, and if you look at who were lobbying organizations behind that, it was not, you know, it wasn't small businesses, it was Detroit, with $78 sure. million dollars worth of checkbook diplomacy. Yeah, and what's, and, what's a, and what's amazing to me is I go to Europe, and, and General Motors makes cars there under the name of Opel that, that I've driven, they're, they're great cars, that get 40, 50, 55, 60 miles to the gallon routinely. I mean, just routinely. And they say, oh, we can't do that here. Right. I mean, it's just. Well, it's Tom, you're doing a great job, man. I'll, I'll see you on the barricade. Okay. Thanks a lot, Robert. Good talking to you. Right. Thanks, thanks for the call. Great to hear from you. One eight six six three zero three twenty two seventy. Our telephone number. If you'd like to be on the program, Shay and Georgia on the line. Hey, Shay, what's on your mind today? Hey, I was just calling about the uh, the oil issue that you were talking about, and uh, I just wanted to say, you know, the, the uh, I think we, we kind of get a little over stuck on the idea of oil when. The problem with a lot of the alternatives is that they have low energy density. It's you know, it's, we're awash in energy, but you know, the I agree that oil has a high energy density. That is, you get a lot of BTUs out of a small quantity of it. But we also have an enormous amount of space in this country, and so if we're going to use low energy density uh, ways of acquiring energy, for example, large arrays of solar collectors or large wind farms and things like that, we have the space to do it. Yeah, but those, those, I mean, those have problems in that. I mean, what, what happens when... They don't destroy the environment. They don't destroy the ozone layer. They don't, they don't cause global warming. They, they might not lead to the end of life on Earth. Agreed, agreed, definitely. They, they don't... So, so what's the problem? 
Well, he, but here's the thing. I mean, there's plenty of oil. There's if you if you factor in the shale oil in uh, Canada, you got you know hundreds of years of oil. Yeah, I'm not I'm not disputing that there's a lot of hydrocarbons out there, and and the what we're talking probably what we're talking mostly about here is light, sweet, crude. But right. but the right. point is that burning those hydrocarbons. I mean, those I wrote, I wrote a book about this called The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Back if the first edition came out in 1996, and ancient sunlight is oil. I mean, it was a book about peak oil, and and we updated it in 2002, I think, for the you know or 2003 with the new new statistics and things, and. And the, the point is that th- there's this period of time from 400 million years ago to 300 million years ago, more or less, the Carboniferous period, when enormous quantities of carbon dioxide were pulled out of the atmosphere as a way of locking up sunlight by plant material. And, and that stuff, you know, settled to the mats of, of uh, ocean vegetation, settled to the bottom of the ocean. Those on land got buried under, you know, earthquakes and, and tectonic activity and whatnot. And, and that's what we call coal, oil, and gas right now. Right. And so right. by burning that ancient sunlight, by liberating literally a hundred million years worth of energy that fell on the face of the earth that was captured by plants and that and that used carbon as a way to as a way to hold that by liberating that energy uh, you know we're we're liberating a, a probably a negligible amount of heat into the atmosphere in terms of the planet but we're we're, right. we're reducing we're producing an enormous amount of carbon that we're putting back into the atmosphere the atmosphere during the carboniferous period is not an atmosphere that frankly most scientists think would be real habitable for humans right now we're, do, we're not do we really want to go there so we don't but we also don't want to fall into an ice age i mean there's a guy out there harm de Blige, that that argues you know, we're basically in an interglacial period, and we're due, we're overdue for returning to an ice age. And, and, one of the, and one of the biggest probabilities to trigger an ice age is the warming of the oceans that shuts down the Great Conveyor Belt that carries Pacific Ocean fresh, warm, or relatively fresh compared to the Atlantic, uh, and, wa- and warmer water into around the southern tip of Africa, up, we call it the Gulf Stream as it goes off the right, off right. Florida, takes that heat up to right off the coast of, of Europe, of northern Europe, and, you know, six, seven hundred miles or, or kilometers south of, of Greenland, at that point, it's lost so much heat and it's lost so much moisture, it's become more saline and colder and denser than the Atlantic Ocean water. It settles to the floor of the Atlantic, and, and this giant river, it's a, it, it contains a thousand times more water than all the rivers rivers on land hits the bottom of the ocean and comes back you know goes back out to the pacific that entire round trip takes about a thousand years that is what's producing the heat that causes northern europe to 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 be relatively temperate when it's at the latitude of of siberia or the latitude of central you know north central uh, uh canada and and if that thing shuts down you're going to have 800 million people in europe uh, living in a in a place where you've got perpetual winter and no capacity to grow grow crops. There's a lot of people in Europe who are very very worried about that, and it's it's actually no, it's starting no to stutter. We're, we're, nowhere, we're nowhere near that. I mean, the, the no. In the last ten years, the, the 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 actually three years ago, the the flow in the Great Conveyor Belt off the, these these giant. Uh, you know, uh, whirlpools, I guess you could call them, off the coast right. of Greenland, uh, they, they actually diminished in, in total capacity by about 15%, as I recall. And I, I'd have to go back and look at my own book to get the actual numbers. But, I mean, we're noticing that there are changes. And the changes are the consequence of the melting of the, of the icebergs on Greenland, right. dumping right. fresh fresh cold water into the North Atlantic, so that it's, and, and which is diluting that, that very saline water, shutting down the thermohaline circulation. We're... What we're doing with global warming right now is setting up an ice age for Europe. Well, now, from what I understand, what about the countervailing conditions there? Because if you're increasing the amount of carbon, you're trapping more heat, which might act against that. 
And I, I mean, no, it wouldn't. It doesn't. It, 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 the systems are more complex than that. It's not just that, gee, the world gets warmer. It's, it's not that at all. What happens is that, that the extremes get greater. What you'll find is that, particularly if the, if the, uh, if the great conveyor belt shuts down, is that the norm, northern and su- extreme southern climates are going to go glacial, at least the northern ones, and, and the equator is going to be turned turn into a desert. From what I understand, the, the last time humanity came out of Africa, when the last the, the last interglacial about 135,000 years ago, that happened as the amount of carbon in the atmosphere went up. I mean, dumping carbon into the atmosphere up to a point is the, good. the latest IPCC study, as I recall, I may be wrong on this, but I I don't think so. I don't have it right in front of me. Said that we are now at carbon levels that we haven't seen in 600,000 years. Okay, I mean, I mean, we got a, we got a serious problem here, Shay. You, I, 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 you got to check out your science, and, and we've got a really serious problem here, um, and, 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 and we have to be attending to it. And I appreciate the call, and you know, I, I understand you probably read Michael Crichton's book, and <laughs> there's a lot of bad science out there. Second story on the front page today is about uh, this these new 60-second TV ads that are going to start airing in 14 cities today, uh, including Washington, D.C., Dallas, Albany, uh, Anchorage, Albuquerque, 14 cities. Um, Al Gore's movie about global warming and inconvenient truth premieres a week from tomorrow. It has a major distribution deal. It's not going to be some documentary you have to borrow from your buddy to see on DVD at a house party. It's actually going to be in real theaters all across the country. Um, eight days out from the premiere of this big movie that just might change the way Americans feel about global warming, these new ads are being launched today from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, they're being funded by the oil companies, basically. It's what they're doing with their record profits, the most profitable companies ever in American history. Uh, this is airing in 14 cities nationwide today. I, there's nothing I can add to it that is not the point, that, that the point isn't made by hearing it yourself. There's something in these pictures you can't see. It's essential to life. What is it? We breathe it out. Mm? Plants breathe it in. Mm. It comes from animal life. <laughs> The oceans, the earth, it's and the great. we find in it. Oh. It's called carbon dioxide, CO2. <laughs> the fuels that produce CO2 have freed us from a world of back-breaking labor. <laughs> lighting up our lives, allowing us to create and move the things we need, the people we love. <laughs> now, some politicians want to label carbon dioxide a pollutant. Imagine if they succeed. What would our lives be like then? Carbon dioxide. They call it pollution. We call it life. Carbon dioxide, life, and the people we love. Global warming? Stupid made-up idea by liberals. This is what our pain at the pump is paying for. This is what the oil companies are spending their money on. The Washington Post today describes the group running these ads as a libertarian group, not noting that their major funder is Exxon. Amy in San Diego, California. Hey, Amy, welcome to the program. 
Hey, Tom. Great show, as always. Um, and I, w- I loved hearing you yesterday on um, Sam and Janine's show, and you said something that I had never heard before, and that was about Jimmy Carter. He, um, I guess he was responsible for um, raising standards on um, miles per gallon the car should be getting, and that by, I think you said, 1986, we would have been foreign oil independent. And that's just shocking to me. Yeah, that was actually it was uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. called in when I was on the right, and he right. laid out the statistics. But but the clip that I played was Jimmy Carter. This is Jimmy Carter on July fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one. I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. And then here's the real heartbreaker, what he was doing. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. Not just 20% of our electricity, 20% of our energy. Wow. It's mind-boggling. And he was actually, he actually set us on the path to do it, and we would be there now if it wasn't for Ronald Reagan coming I know. It's just, it's just horrible. Can I ask you one question? I hope this is quick. What actually caused the energy crisis in the 70s? Was it artificial or... Well, it was, it was two things. Number one, we were living beyond our means. We had, we had reached the point where... Uh, we, it was getting more and more difficult and expensive to extract oil here in the continental United States, so we started importing a lot of oil. That, that was through the late 60s and early 70s. Uh-huh. And then, and then um, or actually I guess the mid-70s was really when it started to peak out. And, and then, you know, there was the, the, the war. I think it was the, the Six-Day War. I, I can't keep track of the, the, the Middle Eastern wars, but uh-huh. whichever war it was, uh, and and the, the United States took the side of Israel in that, and the Arab countries retaliated, OPEC retaliated, by cutting off our oil supply. Okay. And, and I remember uh, Louise and I were living in Detroit at the time. In fact, she was pregnant with our oldest child, so this must have been 33 years ago. And, and uh, the city, I remember people, people getting shot in gas lines because yes, you, you had to wait 8, 10 hours to get, to get a tank of gasoline. Um, I remember the, the stores, the supermarket stores, by the third day of this thing, because the Teamsters went on strike, as I recall, or at least some of the truckers went on strike. By the third day, you could you walk into the supermarkets, they were empty. They were just absolutely empty. I mean, the, the shelves were stripped of, of everything except paper plates because people were hoarding because they were you know, anticipating an absolute meltdown disaster. I mean, it was, it was a very, very, very difficult time. Yeah, I was, and, just, I was just a little bit younger than you, but I remember it quite well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so in, in, in a way, it was a natural phenomenon, Amy, Amy yeah. in, in as much as we were already at that point living beyond our means, but in yeah. a way it was also artificial because it was a product of that war in the Middle East and, yeah. and the Arab reaction to it. And, and now we're living way beyond our means. Now uh-huh. instead of importing 5%, 10% of our oil, we're importing you know, something like 40%, 50% of our oil, and uh, oh. we're, we're very vulnerable. Amy, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Hear from you. I appreciate it.
Rachel Maddow Show. It's 51 minutes past the hour. Yes! Now, it's Kent Jones Now with Kent Jones Now. Good morning, Dateline Ken. Registering a solid 8.5 out of 10 on my poetic justice meter was the image of the oft-maligned, beat-down, and ridiculed Al Gore on the red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival, basking in the kind of pop culture adoration France reserves for Americans who publicly dump on our president on film. <laughs> N'est-ce pas, Michael Moore? <laughs> Gore was in the Riviera promoting his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, and told the French that America is emerging from, quote, a bubble of unreality about global warming. This prompted one French reporter to ask, does that bubble include all of Florida or just Palm Beach County? <laughs> Gore continued, quote, I even believe that there is a chance that within the next two years, even President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney will be forced to change their position on this crisis. Experts say this should occur at around the same time Donald Rumsfeld is replaced by Jello Biafra. <laughs> Gore concluded, one can only attempt to create one's own reality for so long. Reality proper has a way of insisting itself upon you. Say amen, somebody. <laughs> this is Kent Jones for the Rachel Maddow Show on Air America Mornings. Vigilance. Insisting itself upon you. Isn't that elegant? That yes. is stupendous. Yeah, and we could have had him. <laughs> oh, why, don't we, why don't we write fortune cookies? Chavez of Venezuelan president who you recently met with and interviewed and we broadcast on Democracy Now! was in Vienna offering to the poor of Europe cheap oil. Um, of course, the deaths continue in Iraq, both U.S. soldiers and Iraqis. Um, we have the spy scandal that is unfolding here in the United States. Link them. Yeah, that's why I wrote a book, because <laughs> it does link the whole thing together. I mean, I just got back from meeting with Chavez, as you know, and you showed our, our interview a few weeks ago. He's offered the U.S. $50 a barrel oil. That's a third off of what we're paying right now. Now, you would think our president would be down at Caracas kissing Hugo Chavez's behind and saying, thank you, thank you for dropping the price of oil by a third, and let's, let's make a deal, because Chavez wants a deal. But he's not doing that our president, even though the high prices are costing about a million jobs right now. And the reason he's not is that, um, is that what Chavez will not do uh, is that Chavez will not return the money. It's not about petroleum, it's about petrodollars, as I explain in the book. In other words, when George Bush rides around with King Abdullah in his little golf cart on the Crawford Ranch, he's not trying to get Abdullah's oil. Abdullah can't drink the stuff. He's got to sell it to us in Japan. But Abdullah takes the money back from, uh, from the, uh, when you fill up your SUV, you give your money to Saudi Arabia, the big oil companies, Saudi Arabia, but then he returns it in the form of petrodollars. And that is what is funding George Bush's mad spending spree. We have a president who's racked up $2 trillion in extra debt, you know, st uh, stone sober apparently, and someone's got to pay for that. And basically, we're paying for it by effectively an oil tax, which is returned to us because the Gulf states and 
our other trading partners are now buying up $2 trillion in U.S. Treasury bonds and debt. So in other words, they're recycling the money back and paying for George Bush's spending spree on dropping inheritance, ending inheritance taxes, uh, you know, uh, several wars, etc. Now, Hugo Chavez says, I'll give you cheap oil, not only to the poor, but to everyone. In return, but I'm not giving you back the money. That money's going to stay in Latin America to build our nations. And he just withdrew $20 billion out of the U.S. Federal Reserve. You have to understand, this is a punch in the face of the U.S. administration, far more than withholding oil, withholding and withdrawing petrodollars, as I explained in the book. And that's why you have that little nice floater from... Uh, uh, balloon thrown out by uh, Reverend Robertson, Pat Robertson, saying Hugo Chavez thinks we're trying to assassinate him and I think we ought to just go and do it because they have got to get that. It's not that they need that oil money, that oil. They need that oil money. And if they can't get it, they have to eliminate Hugo Chavez. Is the war in Iraq a war for oil? Is the war for Iraq, in Iraq for oil? It's about, yes, it's about the oil, but not for the oil. I. Um, in my investigations for Armed Madhouse, I ended up with a story far more fascinating and difficult than I imagined. We didn't go in to grab the oil, just the opposite. We went in to control the oil and make sure we didn't get it. It goes back to 1920 when um, the oil companies sat in a room in Brussels, in a hotel room, drew a red line around Iraq and said, there will be no oil coming out of that nation. They have to suppress oil coming out of Iraq. Otherwise, the price of oil will collapse and OPEC and Saudi Arabia will collapse. And so what I found, what I discovered uh, that they're very unhappy about is a 323-page plan, which was written by Big Oil, which is, the, which is the secret but official plan of the United States for Iraq's oil, written by uh, the Big Oil companies out of the James Baker Institute in uh, coordination with uh, a secret committee of the Council on Foreign Relations. I know it sounds, it sounds very conspiratorial, but this is exactly how they do it. It's, uh, it's quite wild. And it's all about a plan to control Iraq's oil and make sure that Iraq has a system which, quote, enhances its relationship with OPEC. In other words, the whole idea is to maintain the power of OPEC, which mean, means maintaining the power of Saudi Arabia. And this is one of the reasons they absolutely hate Hugo Chavez, as you'll see in, in uh, next week's Harper's coming out, which is basically an excerpt from the book. Uh, Hugo Chavez on June 1st is going to ask OPEC to officially recognize that he has more oil than Saudi Arabia. This is a geopolitical earthquake. And the inside documents from the U.S. Department of Energy, which we have in the book and in Harper's, say, yeah, he's got more oil than Saudi Arabia. And is it accessible? That's the trick. It's accessible, but the price of oil, it's heavy oil, which means it costs about, you, gotta, you need oil to be about $30 a barrel, less than half of what it is now. Chavez has cut a deal with me. Oil will never drop below a minimum price, but we'll get off this insane world-destroying $75 a barrel. I'll give you cheap oil, but you just put a floor under it. He shook hands with Bill Clinton on the deal, and Bush came in and spit on his hand to say the least. He had the guy kidnapped back in 2002. Bush does not, you have to remember, he doesn't like cheap oil. When we talk about paying $3 a gallon gasoline, Bush's benefactors, donors, and his own family collects the $3 a gallon. What do you mean? Well, we're paying 3 bucks a gallon. Uh, ExxonMobil is collecting $3 a gallon. There's a chapter called Trillion Dollar Babies. When Bush came in, we had 
oil as low as $18 a barrel. It was like water. Bush has successfully built up the price of oil from 18 bucks a barrel to over $70 a barrel. That's the mission accomplished. He didn't make a mistake here. That's the mission accomplished. ExxonMobil, which after Enron is the biggest lifetime donor to the Bush campaigns, um, its value of its reserves, of its oil reserves, because of the Bush wars and Bush actions, has gone up by almost exactly $1 trillion in value. Just one company, a trillion dollar windfall to a single company. That's the Bush benefactors. And you have to look at where does Bush make its money. So the problem that they have now is that Chavez is trying to supplant the Saudis running OPEC. And we've got a president who basically is caught up in the in you know these guys with in the bathrobes and crowns, these dictators of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, and that's what the Bush family is linked up to, and they are not going to let him, them be supplanted by Chavez. Greg Palast, when you open your book, Our Madhouse, um, most people have a, a white space there, but you use every inch, and you have a secret history of the war over oil in Iraq. Yeah. Um, Yes, I had you a big, have a chronology. Uh, yes, I had a big fight with my uh, capitalist uh, pig publisher to put in this very fancy, colorful uh, um, front page to give you a chronology of the complexity of these secret deals between the administration and big oil. We actually got our hands on two different plans for Iraq's oil, a 101-page plan and a 323-page plan, which is all about, in, in great detail, what we are going to do with Iraq's oil, and the number of Iraqis involved in, in writing this thing is exactly zero. You know, and of course the number of Americans who know that that's why we are in Iraq. And we even know from, uh, from in my research for our madhouse, going through this and getting this document, I now know what was in the discussions between the oil companies Ken Lay and Dick Cheney in his bunker. All right, what? Well, and you'll see there, the, they were going over the oil maps of Iraq. And the question was, why was Ken Lay, you know, the kind of Al Capone of electricity... Who's on trial right who's now. Who's on trial right now. Is about, the verdict's about to come down. Uh, why was he in a meeting with oil companies looking over the maps of Iraq? The answer is he was on this committee drafting up the program for what to do about Iraq. And they had to get rid of Saddam because he was jerking the oil markets up and down. I was very interested, why did we go into Iraq suddenly? And the answer was he was destabilizing the oil markets. He was making it jump up, making it jump down, and um, he had to go. And that's right in the documentation. Plan B? Plan B. There are two plans. There was a neocon plan, which was 101 pages long. Now, they actually did want to break up OPEC and destroy Saudi Arabia. But uh, the Bush family wasn't going to let that happen, nor was big oil. And you will see behind this all uh, James Baker and, of course, Dick Cheney. You know, actually, the interesting thing, I was just realizing this morning, four years of investigation, Amy, you'll find in the book. You'll see all this stuff about the hugger-muggers between Cheney, big oil, uh, Rumsfeld, uh, Jim Baker. Nowhere is there any discussion of George Bush. He was not in the picture. He was not in the frame. They, they, basically, there was no decision made or even discussed with George Bush. He's the president who's not there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, now, would you just look at that? A listener-submitted clip of Democracy Now! With Greg Pallas, no less. What more could you ask for? Um... You know, I'm actually a little embarrassed to admit to a big group of liberals, uh, as I am talking to right now, 
that I actually don't listen to Democracy Now!, but, you know, as much as I admire the important work that they do, Amy Goodman's voice just puts me right to sleep. And, um, and I, I, I listen to all of my podcasts uh, about, well, nearly all of them while driving. So that uh, doesn't work out too well. But, uh, you know, listeners submitted clips of democracy now i'm all over that and you can actually hear the second half of that interview on tomorrow's show about a topic that i will not disclose per my regular uh style i guess that uh, i like to surprise you with what what each day's topic is going to be about it's a good one though so anyways, you got to love listener-submitted clips, and if you would like to be equally as famous as What's-His-Name, who sent me that clip, I apologize for not having your email in front of me, although I don't really think that uh, they sent in that clip in any attempt to uh, get famous themselves, just uh, just helping the cause. So if you would like to be just as... Uh, famous and thanked just as thoroughly on the, uh, oh God, I hate saying on the air because it's not, but I, I, we haven't, you know, as a community, we haven't decided what else to say. So if you'd like to be thanked on the show, you can send in uh, clips, just kind of let me know um, where you heard it, that sort of thing, you know, what show, what day, what time all those sorts of things, and uh, and I'll check them out. So, that was the exciting news of the day. More tomorrow. Go to the website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com. You know, contact me, hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Do all those other fun things that I like for you guys to do from the website under the support the show section, and uh, you all have a good day. Wait a second, one more thing. I almost forgot. Everybody, get ready to go back to your regularly scheduled sleep pattern. Carrie from Canada wrote back in, and we have finally, you know, met in the middle. You can all calm down now. All right, have a good one. Hello, this is Eurosatan. Long day of tormenting. I love to download the Sooner Thought podcast. It keeps me up to date with political news, commentary, and satire, great interviews with authors and newsmakers of the day, and of course, we must not forget the Eurosatan interview, in which Alex and I discuss the lighter side of the darker side of the world. Tune in at soonerthought.libsyn.com or search iTunes for Sooner Thought. Tell them the devil made you do it.